Greetings, and welcome to Swamped, a nerdy science podcast all about swamps. Each week, we explore anything from wetland science to swamp folklore. I'm Jess, and this is episode three, Emily Dickinson Loved Swamps. Are you a poetry fan? Me neither. I have a short story to tell you about when I first knew that poetry wasn't going to be it for me. In elementary school, we had this poetry club, and uh, I think we were writing haikus or something, and the poetry teacher was like, just so you guys know, haikus don't have to be all about nature. They can be about something as simple as a hot dog. So I wrote my own unique poem about roses, I think it was. Uh, I, I said something about petals floating on the wind and how they were the roses' children. I finished reading the stupid poem that I wrote, and the teacher goes, uh, you know, roses don't come from petals, right? It was from that point on, I knew I was no Shakespeare, (laughs) and I definitely was not going to become the world's next greatest poet. After that point, I felt as though poetry was disingenuous. There were so many rules about this thing that you were supposed to write from the heart that it distorted what you were really feeling, or at least it seemed that way. And that's what I'm going to kind of be talking about today. I'm going to take a deep dive into nature writers and how they were really influenced by the attitudes of their time. When you delve into the literature, you can truly see who was swayed into a certain style of writing about wetlands and who stuck to what they truly felt about these ecosystems. And so uh, some of those writers that I'm going to be talking about are Henry David Thoreau, Aldo Leopold, he actually was one of the ones who wrote about wetlands in a positive way. I'm also going to touch on Tolkien and Beowulf. And then I'm also going to be talking about Emily Dickinson. Although wetland poetry and wetland literature seems like a very niche thing, there's actually a lot of people who talk about wetland literature and eco-criticism, which is looking at the way that people talk about the environment and environmental issues. When I talk about Henry David Thoreau, there are a number of writings that I'll link to on the blog that you can read if you are not sick of this topic by the end of this episode. He was one of the earliest classic environmental writers, and he was alive from 1817 to 1862, which means that his career had a little bit of overlap with Emily Dickinson's. Although Thoreau started to write about wetlands in a positive way later on in his life, there was one specific passage that he would give as part of a speech when he traveled the states giving guest lectures at universities. In this particular passage he was having a dream sequence and it goes like this nowadays almost all man's improvements so called as the building of houses and the cutting down of the forest and of all large trees simply deform the landscape and make it more and more tame and cheap a people who would begin by burning the fences and let the forest stand i saw the fences half consumed their ends lost in the middle of the prairie, in some worldly miser with the surveyor looking after his bounds, while heaven had taken place around him, and he did not see the angels going to and fro, but was looking for an old post hole in the midst of paradise. I looked again, 
and saw him standing in the middle of a boggy Stygian fen, surrounded by devils, and he had his bounds, without a doubt, three little stones where a stake had been driven, and looking nearer, I saw that the Prince of Darkness was his surveyor. The idea of heaven and hell come up all the time when you're looking at writing surrounding wetlands. And this comes from a long lost European American history where Europeans associated the smell coming from wetlands, which was actually methane and sulfur with diseases like black plague and malaria. And because of that, they would have connected the smell of wetlands and the presence of wetlands themselves with illness. But the fact that you could see that fear manifest itself even in environmentalist writing, that's kind of shocking. Later on in 1857, Thoreau wrote in his journal, In some sunny and sheltered hollow, with some just-melted pool at its bottom, as you recline on the fine withered sedge, and are perchance dreaming of spring there, a single dry hard croak, like a grating twig, comes up from the pool. And then in another piece, Thoreau writes, When I would recreate myself, I'd seek the darkest woods, the thickest and most indeterminable to the citizen, most dismal swamp. I enter a swamp as a sacred place, a sanctum sanctorum. There is the strength, the marrow of nature. What Thoreau communicates here is that the wetland is something he loves because it provides solace from the rest of humanity. But is that really love or is it just usefulness? The funny thing about writers like Thoreau is that they were described as contrarian and they just wanted to go against the flow. And in most cases they did. But in terms of wetlands, it seems like the civilized world was just as afraid of wetlands as the environmentalists of the time, like Thoreau. Moving on, let's talk about Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson and Henry David Thoreau both used the term pool to refer to wetlands, but they also described them as sleepy or lethargic. Both writers had herbariums. They would dry out plants and then they would paste them on a sheet and this helped them organize the species or specimens that they found. Apparently, Emily Dickinson was not a fan of the Linnaeus system of classification, which is, you know, when you organize something by its kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and then finally its species. So apparently her herbarium was not labeled very well and kind of not organized. She would just put it in in the order that she found each plant or flower, whereas other people would tend to organize their herbariums by class, order, species, whatever. And she collected lots and lots of wetland plants. Her favorites were probably orchids because she had so many of those. And I was reading over her poetry and she used a lot of exclamation points, which makes it seem like she's very excited every time that she finds a wetland plant in her backyard. Even though she grows these kinds of plants, (laughs) um, she was still just as uh, enthused to see them and add them to her collection. So in one of her poems, she writes this. So I pull my stockings off, wading in the water, for the disobedience sake, boy that lived for Otta. It seems that she really enjoyed adventuring in wetlands and she understood that 
they were no place for people, but they were definitely a place for the wild and frogs and things of that nature. In some ways, Emily Dickinson must have felt limited by what she felt was her role as a lady in society, that she had to conform to a certain way of behaving. Wetland served as her escape, and at some point, it seems like she might not have been able to venture out to the swamps around her estate. Instead, she created these wonderful poems where she could make wetlands as imaginative as she would like. I think it's interesting to see that she was more playful about her views of wetlands, um, whereas the other nature writers were fearful of these environments. Next up, let's talk about John Muir. I'm so excited to talk about this dude. He accomplished a 10,000-mile walk from Ohio River to Kentucky, also to Tennessee, then North Carolina and South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and then finally to the Gulf of Mexico. Who has that kind of time? Apparently this guy. Also, how the heck do you make enough money to go on a crazy trip like this? I don't know. The walk began in 1867, and he kept a journal the whole time. The goal was to explore tropical vegetation. But the funniest part is that John Muir was not a huge fan of most animals, including alligators. In one of his adventures that he writes down in his journal, he stumbled upon a southern cypress swamp. And he writes, This remarkable tree, called cypress, is a taxiodium. It grows large and high and is remarkable for its flat crown. The whole forest seems level on the top, as if each tree had grown up against a ceiling or had been rolled while growing. The taxiodium is the only level-topped tree I have seen. The branches, though spreading, are careful not to pass each other and stop suddenly on reaching the general level, as if they had grown up against a ceiling. End quote. The point that is most interesting about this note is not what it contains, but what it left out. And this is brought up in an article called Wetland Gloom and Wetland Glory, in which the author analyzes different texts surrounding wetland literature. If you were standing in front of a cypress tree, the thing that would stand out to you the most is the roots of the tree. Some people call them the tree's knees. They make it look as though the tree is popping out of standing water and built on this massive base full of wood. So it's very strange that Muir, the environmental writer, chose to forego elaborating further on the scene of a cypress swamp and what it means to be surrounded by all these massive cypress trees. The only truly detailed accounts you'll find from Muir on the ecology of southern cypress swamps was about the flora and the fact that it was hard for him to find a dry place to sleep. Now, that's hilarious. If you want to look up a picture of bald cypress trees, I highly suggest it because you'll see that the roots kind of come up out of the water and it makes the tree elevated. It's truly stunning. I mean, nature, you got an A plus on this one. Here is the part where Muir talks about the ecological setting. In waiting, I never attempt to keep my clothes dry because the water was too deep. 
and the necessary care would consume too much time. Had the water that I was forced to wade been transparent, it would have lost much of its difficulty. But as it was, I constantly expected to plant my feet on an alligator, and therefore proceeded with strained caution. The opacity of the water caused uneasiness, also on account of my inability to determine its depth. In many places, I was compelled to turn back after waiting 40 or 50 yards and try again a score of times before I was able to get across a single lagoon. If you're going to go on a 10,000-mile journey from Ohio River to Kentucky, Tennessee, the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, and finally to the Gulf of Mexico, I guess you don't have the capacity to carry a bunch of things. But given that all of those places have rivers, would maybe traveling by canoe have been a good idea? (laughs) Like a Tom Sawyer-esque Huckleberry Finn kind of adventure. That's the extent of what I have on John Muir. But next, we'll be moving on to Aldo Leopold. Aldo Leopold came along a lot later than the early environmentalist writers. He started becoming big in environmental literature in around the the late 1930s. He finally got his book, The Sand County Almanac, published in 1948. Sadly, he died just a week after his almanac got published. But the almanac is no ordinary almanac. It doesn't predict the weather. It's mostly a collection of poems and experiences that he had out at his cabin. In particular, one that really gets into wetland ecology is called Marshland Elegy. Here it goes. A dawn wind stirs on the great marsh. With almost imperceptible slowness, it rolls a bank of fog across the wide morass. Like the white ghost of a glacier, the mists advance riding over phalanxes of tamarack, sliding across bog meadows heavy with dew. A single silence hangs from horizon to horizon. And then he goes on to talk about the cranes which feed off of the marsh. He even talks about one of the most defining parts of wetland ecology, and that would be peat layers. He really grasped the environmental side of things So why is it that Aldo Leopold and Emily Dickinson wrote about wetlands in a positive light while other writers didn't? This next quote by Peter Fritzl sums it up pretty well. Wetlands are not conventional wild areas. They do not cater to established classical concepts of vista, horizon, and landscape. By comparison with the Smokies or the High Sierra, wetlands are claustrophobic. They force you inward, both upon yourself and upon the non-human world. They cannot give you grand views. They humble you rather than reinforce your delusions of grandeur. A wetland is nothing if not a patient environment. It reminds you more of slow, ongoing processes of change than it does the pinnacles of evolutionary achievement. End quote. What more is there to say? Sometimes nature just isn't beautiful, and that's okay. Let's talk about Beowulf. This is something that I think we read in like middle school and all I remember is all the middle school boys loved it because there was a ton of gore and fighting. It was also in comic book form. So it was probably the only mandatory reading that people didn't just spark note. 
So Beowulf is an old English epic poem from around 700 to 1,000 years AD. Let me give you the lowdown on some of the characters. There's Beowulf, and he's the hero. He's a young, beautiful man, whatever. There's Grendel, who is one of the monsters who you do not want to upset. He is a demon, he is big, he is nasty, and he will kill you. And um, there are some warriors who are, like, on Beowulf's side. And then I think there's a king who, like, is putting Beowulf through all of this most of the time. So in this one episode, or one part of the long epic poem, Beowulf had killed Grendel, the evil monster. Grendel's mother was angry. One night, while Beowulf and all of the warriors were sleeping in the mead hall, Grendel's mother comes in and she attacks this man named Herot. People wake up and start to attack her. So then she turns and grabs one of Beowulf's friends and counselor named Ashir. And on her way out, she also takes Grendel's arm. Maybe she's planning to regenerate him, like the swamp thing. So then Beowulf is woken up and people are like, Beowulf, like, look at what happened. And he decides he has to kill this monster that is Grendel's mother. But she's retreated into this horrible swampy woodland where her lair is. The wetland has these supernatural powers. The surface of the water burns, so nobody can ever reach down into the lake. Even animals want to avoid this area. But before Beowulf can go search for Grendel's mother, Herot is under attack again from a demon, and he's got to go save him first. Beowulf is offered chests of gold if he goes to save Herot and wins this fight. The warriors get in their saddles and they set off towards where Herot is. They follow the tracks that they see until the edge of a cliff, and that's where they find Ashir's head. As they peer over the cliff, they can see into the watery depths of Grendel's mother's swamp. And what they see there ain't pretty. The cloudy water is moving with serpents and sea dragons. Beowulf shoots one with an arrow. Then they start to prepare for battle. And that is the end of that section. So this is terrifyingly awesome. The reason why I low-key want to travel to Beowulf's wetlands is because they have this magic power. That's the first time someone has ever given a wetland in itself power. I mean, not the first time, I'm sure, but I think it makes her a really interesting battle scene. And the fact that this was written in 700 AD, now that's impressive. I'm sure people were hitting up their libraries like crazy trying to get their hands on (laughs) a copy of the epic. But you could see how this influenced Lord of the Rings if you've seen Lord of the Rings. If you haven't, that's okay. Because Lord of the Rings is up next. So in Lord of the Rings... The two towers. Gollum is like the Dobby of Lord of the Rings. He's this little creature who's kind of likable, but also you're not sure what he's up to. And he's leading the hobbits through a massive bog because it will help get them to the Black Gate of Mordor faster. But interestingly, there's little fires that are burning in the vegetation, and they also see the faces of dead elves, men, and orcses in the water. 
and those scare the hobbits. But let's face it, the hobbits are scared of everything. Maybe they're mermaids or something. So Gollum says they're called the Dead Marshes, and not to follow the lights, because the lights are lit by the dead ones. Of course, Frodo falls in when looking at one of the faces he recognizes. He's basically just being a hobbit, because hobbits are clumsy. Luckily, his friend Sam pulls him out just as he was starting to feel the pull of the dead marsh. That's really the extent of their marsh adventures. I would say that definitely feels like it's inspired by Beowulf because there is a mist, there are things in the water, of course, and there is fire as well. Although the fire isn't as powerful or um, deadly as in Beowulf. Tolkien's wetlands play off of old folklore, but they also add in new gems that make you kind of go, hmm, like, what is the meaning behind that? And that's cool. One of the final quotes I'm going to read is from Pilgrim's Progress, which is a Christian parable that was written in 1678. So the pilgrim has set off on a journey to find grace. And I don't mean finding a person named Grace. I mean a figurative form of grace. On his path, he stumbles across a bog. He asks a character named Help, why hasn't the bog been drained? And Help responds, this miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. It is the descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin doth continually run, and therefore it is called the slough of despond. For still as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there ariseth in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and settle in this place. And then Help goes on to explain that no amount of soil added to the bog will create more solid ground. In fact, the bog is made of a lack of faith, and that makes life wretched. There is no way that this bog can be quote-unquote improved, either through draining or building or soil compaction. All of the things that essentially damage wetlands cannot be done to this wetland. Conservationists are like, please show us this wetland. (laughs) There is an interesting history of how Europeans came to fear wetlands and how they brought those fears with them to the Americas during the European settlement. However, I think that is another story for another time because we would have to get into language, public health, religion, farming, etc. At the end of all of this, the takeaways are write poetry how you want to write it. Don't put nature on a pedestal because nature isn't otherworldly. It's this worldly. That's the point. But if you're in the world of fantasy, anything can happen. Wetlands can be mystical. They can be downright terrifying. There's no bounds. Finally, we are all influenced by our society, no matter how contrarian we try to be. Well, that concludes my collection of wetland literature for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. Thanks for listening to another episode of Swamped. Swamped is a podcast by me, Jess Turner. 
Podcast artwork is by Katie Turner, owner of KT Art Studio. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Check out the Swamped website at defineearth.com swamped and submit questions or ideas to defineearth.com contact me. Now get out of my swamp.